Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of Ignite the Flame Audio season 2. So glad you could be with us here for this episode. For those of you who are just joining us, I would encourage you, if you haven't already gone through season 1, to head back to season 1 and make sure that you catch that, just so this story makes chronological sense. If you've already caught season 1, but you're new to this particular season, I'd advise you to head back to the first episode. For those of you who are pretty much commonplace here, you know how we roll by this point, where we do the reading of a chapter, followed by a section known as the origin of ideas, where we discuss the inspirations behind the chapter, almost like a director's cut edition of a film, but with the book instead. Then we go into a section known as tips of the trade. For those of you who are aspiring to be authors, or those of you who are already authors, just looking for that little bit extra, it's just tips that I myself have picked up over the three years that we've been an author, and just sharing them with yourself. So I'm going to stop waffling, and let's go ahead and get straight into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow Chapter 5 Falling Ah, Doctor, are you here to visit as well? I recommend... If you will excuse me, Inspector, we have a scene to attend to. Ah, yes. The sign. Did you not find anything conclusive? Several items, each with their own mysteries and leads to follow, but not everything adds up. How do you mean? A close contact tells me a local thief by the name of Edward Steeple was hired by a rival gang to steal evidence and replace it with an item of incrimination. I checked the prints, and it doesn't make sense. A likely story, from a close contact you say. Do you not think that they are just trying to break your faith in the judicial system? Whatever the case, I feel it worth chasing. But while you waste your time gallivanting after myths and legends, I will conduct a police investigation. You are one to talk of wasting time and gallivanting when all you pursue is death and self-destruction. Just because I take part in frivolities does not mean that I will die as a result. Your climbs are unsupported, and I deem them fearful, which fall upon deaf ears. On your way then, Inspector. Good luck solving the case. But, Doctor, I've been given strict orders to ensure your involvement. I follow no such orders. If you are not willing to journey into the dark, then I will go alone. I prefer it that way, anyway. Now, Doctor, don't be as such. If you'll excuse me. I have an investigation to conduct. Good day, Inspector. Lifting my collar to conceal my face, I walk into the brothel, pushing past the Inspector in an attempt to reach another contact, who could possibly point me in the right direction. Alicia escorts me up the staircase toward her palace of seduction. I journey within, and witness a central circle of seats, fine leather upholstery, and pink furs lining cushions, a thick stench of perfume and incense, masking other duties. Drapes hang from the ceiling, concealing all manner of exotic plants and other beauties cursed to this lair of seduction and fantasy. A crimson ambience, reminiscent of bloodbaths, amply fit the true nature of this establishment, with each soul crying out from the patterns on the walls. The ceiling is decorated in elaborate sketches of Venus and varying goddesses of love and affection. How they could deem this a gift from the gods when all it consisted of was sin and pleasure is beyond me. The stairs spiral toward the cupid-lined heavens, 
and each door is adorned with the flowers of the girls except one, the newest member. A crimson oak is the only barrier between your wildest dreams and reality, and as I place my hand upon the latch, I knock to announce my presence, in accordance with avoiding a compromising situation. The door opens, and Nightshade asks, Yes, who is it? Hello? I'm afraid I am booked for the remainder of the day. Begging your pardon, Miss Nightshade, but I come with a different intent. Oh, information. Information? Very well. You must frequent here often. Can you assist? My colleague would appreciate it. Colleague? The inspector, you mean? The girls have mentioned him. A gentleman, they say, despite his fear, invoking appearance. Yes, the inspector, of course. Can you help us? Of course. Tell your colleague to stop by tonight, at seven, and I will do all I can to assist him. Very well, and thank you, Nightshade. Oh, if you could wear clothing that doesn't provoke him. He may be a gentleman, but still has issues with control. Thank you for the warning, Mr. Dr. Jack Lantern, at your service, madam. Doctor, you have made strides in this world, Jack. I meant to visit, but you stopped returning my letters. I needed time. When Scarcrow left, I felt as though we couldn't see each other again. We couldn't. He said your life would have been endangered. Are you sure you did not wish him to send you away due to cold feet? I wished for this. Why would you say that? I just didn't feel as though I knew you anymore. Not as well as I knew Scarcrow. He was your paramour. He was. And that is why you called off our engagement, isn't it? Because you knew? One of the reasons, perhaps. Well, thank you, Doctor, for once again costing me my happiness. I only meant for you to be happy. And the path Scarcrow walks is one of danger and death. So you continue to say. But I wish to pursue him. And if it was not for you... Then I understand if you despise me, but if it is any consolation, he has returned also. He has? Yes, he has. I apologize for my earlier statement, Doctor. You are always taking the attack from me when it is meant for others. Thank you. Is there something you required of me? As a matter of fact, yes. Do you recognize this? I open my hand to reveal a lipstick. Why, yes. There's a very expensive lipstick, sold on King Street, I believe, in Mrs. Sullivan's exotic scents. Thank you very much, Madame Nightshade. I don't think I'm worthy of that title, Doctor. Nonsense. You are all ladies of class, in my eyes. You are too kind. Very well, Doctor. Tell Scarcrow I await him tonight, and will attempt to give him the information he requires. Okay? Tonight, then, Miss Nightshade. As I raise her gloved hand to my scarf and bow my head in appreciation, I take my leave of this fascinating temptress and focus upon returning to the scene of the crime in order to reveal what the inspector was clearly unaware of or chose to ignore. I needed to pursue and divide the deceit from the truth whilst maintaining my own secrets in the process. Now I faced my greatest challenge, trying to keep my dark apprentice under control when faced with temptation. All I would do was rely on my faith to be strong enough to resist. 
as I leave this nest of lust, Alicia states, Come back soon, Doctor, as many of my girls are showing signs. Their time will come, Alicia. It is an occupational hazard, I'm afraid. And once infected, it will claim them regardless of what I do. Their blood is on your hands, I'm afraid. And there is nothing you can do to prevent that. If only, Doctor. These girls have nowhere else to go. No other life for them but here. Surely I cannot be seen as a monster for providing them that? Perhaps not. But how they pay to stay here could be renegotiated. What would you suggest? They all acquire jobs, such as tailors? No, of course not. But perhaps modelling rather than prostitution. It pays just as well and does not endanger their lives. However... It does not combat the chauvinistic view of women either, but better a moral issue than souls lost. Their souls are not lost, Doctor. I make sure of that. If they had a choice, if I had a choice. You understand? Unfortunately, yes, Alicia. Take care of yourself, won't you? And then... I will. And thank you, Doctor, for trying but I'm afraid you are but one man in a world which is cruel. That is always the case, Alicia. But it won't always be this way. Life will get better for these girls. And you. I promise. Don't make promises you can't keep. Upon my last breath, you mark my words. I will make you see. And if not me, then another. You had better go, Doctor. That inspector will be expecting you. Very well. And when you see him... You tell him he still owes me money for last time. He was three sovereigns short. Hardly worth a life, Alicia. Perhaps not, Doctor. Good day. Good day. She closes the door behind me, and I walk down the stairs with each step, mirroring those whom I had buried across the years from this house of infection and disease. Most not even in the prime of their lives, their parents standing over them, most without the slightest idea of what had claimed them, and a few of them taking more than just their own life, but that of one yet to be started. My heart wept for them, but Alicia was right. What could one man do? But what if it wasn't a man? I would have to try, but perhaps he would help. Perhaps. I summon a carriage and enter with head held low, as if to hide where I had exited from, but it was not my own guilt which disappointed me. Onward, driver, to 172 Regent Street. Very well, sir. Wife expecting you back, sir? I don't have a wife, driver. And information was the reason for my visit. Ah, say no more, sir. Officers don't normally acquire information via these means. Usually precisely, driver. Now, if you wouldn't mind, 172 Regent Street, right you are, sir. As I lean back into the comfort of black leather upholstery and close my eyes, I can only count the days until the newest member becomes my newest victim. Upon arrival, a large number of flash photography awaits, with reporters and civilians trampling over evidence, as though the scene were a public attraction. I descend from the carriage, thanking the driver as I proceed, and attempt to rush through the untamable rabble of scurrying pedestrians. Excuse me, I need to get through here. Excuse me, apologies, madam. As I rush through, I am tugged left and right, back and forth, by the rippling course which surrounds me. Eventually I make it to the door, and the first thing on my lips as the inspector greets me 
is... What is the meaning of this? Well, Doctor, so nice of you to join us. The case has gone public and is underway. An idea put forward by our superiors. A daft idea. Look at this. How will we conduct an investigation when the killer will know every move we make? Aye. I thought of that. But it appears clear-cut. Doctor, after all, the tissue with the bloody fingerprints. I removed that item to my asylum. How did you know of it? The guard from last night. He told me of its existence, and also mentioned your little excursion, one might say. I was following a lead. You were chasing shadows. Now, leave the detecting to me. Understand, Doctor? Yes, I understand, Inspector. I will no longer interfere with your case. You have my word. Well, it goes against orders, but I believe you will be more of a hindrance than an asset. In which case, your best course of action is to remain uninvolved. Is that clear? Yes, Inspector. Just don't be surprised if this case turns out to surprise you, as there is more hidden in this house than at first glance, and I have a feeling it won't be long before someone reveals it. So long as it is my, I have no other interest in what you have to say. Take what little more there is from the sign, and file your report. I will chase up the leads, and make an arrest within a few days. And that will be the end of it. Very well, Inspector. I just hope your lack of hindsight does not return to haunt you some days all. Good day. I brushed past him once more, this time taking his posture with me as our shoulders collide, and twist his torso to face inward toward the scene, bringing injury to myself in the process. If that's the way you want it, Doctor. Come, Constable, let us leave the recluse to himself, else he may cause more trouble than we can handle. Aye, sir. As they leave and slam the door behind them, I am forced to proceed alone, or so I think. A series of claps precedes my actions, and out of the corner of the room steps Sergeant McCline, a tall bear of a man with ginger hair, pale skin and freckled exterior, a handlebar mustache and beard of thick wool, a wide girth and broad shoulders to match, with a strong Scottish accent breaking the room's tension. Hello there, Jack Lantern. I must say that was impressive. What you did back there, and from what I've heard, from a reliable source, that evidence which you found was stolen. By a thief, was it? and later replaced with bloodstained tissue. Amongst a purse of lilac and white, several cigarette ends, playing cards, and a tube of yellowish-brown, with the aroma of mustard and coffee. Is that right? Indeed, sir. So what end? Point blame at Inspector Moore's predecessor. What's more, I believe the bloody tissue was put there too. Falsely incriminating him? Me too. Something isn't quite right with this case, and I intend to find out what it is. Are you with me? In a heartbeat, sir. Good. Well then, Doctor. Looks like we have work to do. But what about Inspector Moore? Moore is a good sport. More welcome competition. Besides, last time I took a chance on an inspector who was, shall we say, unorthodox. Not exactly loved by his peers. It turned out to be the right decision. So, all the more reason to repeat it. Wouldn't you agree? Indeed, sir. Very well then. Tell me, what have you determined so far? Very well, sir. I found several items within the room, all bearing marks of a sort. The first being a silver compass with no face and dials, but a symbol on its back. Recognizable, but I wouldn't expect anyone else to know of it. I may surprise you with what I know of silver compasses. Quite. The second was a deck of cards, each bearing three sets of fingerprints. A Mr. Sedgwick, a Mrs. Amers, 
and a Mr. Biggs. Later, I acquired cigarette ends, which bear a distinct lip colour on their northernmost edges. Very good, Doctor. And have you analysed the colour? Yes, sir. I believe it is sold by a makeup store and department on King Street. Well then, looks like we have the foundations for our case. And the motive? Gambling may play a key role. Power, as each member was well within the office sector. Or perhaps a relationship gone sour. All valid theories. Only thing left to do is test them. So when you're ready, Doctor, shall we begin? Working with you, sir. Unless you want to work this case yourself. No, I... Simply thought I had no right to investigate this case, sir. Well, you're not investigating. I am. And you're coming along to assist me. Understood. And if anyone has a problem, they can take it up with me personally. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Well then, doctor, gather your belongings and we'll be on our way. Yes, sir. As if a giddy schoolchild, I hastened with my bag to accompany the sergeant outside but I was still unsure of his intentions, whether they were genuine or just another false promise. However, one thing was certain. This investigation had begun, and time was now against us with the killer on the upper hand thanks to the press. But now the rules were different. The element of surprise may have been relinquished, but what we could achieve during the nights without the constabulary were limitless. As we summon a carriage, the sergeant lights a pipe and begins to inhale, drawing the embers into the tube and exhaling a puff of smoke to rival the chimneys which were above us. I begin to see faces in the smoke, like those I had witnessed before. The dead begin to rise in every breath, and I begin to wave my hand through the ash, vaporizing their expressions and returning them to another realm. Almost without need for direction, we proceed to Mrs. Sullivan's exotic sense upon King Street, a small and dainty building with vibrant colors and designs, filled with ornation and foreign inspiration letters and words loosely translating to the senses. Upon leaving the carriage, an employee stands by the front entrance in an attempt to promote her latest item. As the weather turns bitter, the employee struggles to maintain her composure, so we proceed without hesitation. Excuse me, miss. It has grown quite bitter. Would you care to wear my scarf? You are most kind, sir. Thank you. As I remove my scarf from around my neck, I draw my color up around my face so as to hide the scars from her sight. But she pays no attention, only flattered by the gesture. Perhaps the purity was undiscovered. Much better. Thank you, sir, for your kindness. Mrs. Sullivan believes showing a public your face promotes sales, but in this weather I have a right mind to ask for a raise in pay. Quite within your rights, miss. Judith Miller, at your service. Miss Miller, how long have you worked for Miss Sullivan? Oh, some years now. Excellent. Do you recognize this? As I display the lipstick to her, she flies into a rage of excitement. Yes! Oh, forgive my lunacy, sir, but this particular stick has been missing from my sight for days. Do you know who procured it? Procured? More like stole it. Yes. I believe it was Monica Winters, a regular of ours. Only... Only what, Miss Miller? She dressed and spoke like her, but didn't appear the same. Perhaps our products were better than Mrs. Sullivan thought. Didn't appear the same, you say? Yes, she was younger, with passion-filled eyes, and her hair was a lot lighter. Blonde, would you say? Yes, quite so. 
is something amok, sir. Forgive me, miss. I am Dr. Lantern, investigating the murder of Angus Hart in Scotland Yard. And I believe Miss Winters may be a key witness. Very pleased to meet you, Dr. Lantern. If I see her again, I will inform you immediately. Thank you for your assistance, Miss Miller. You have been most helpful. Perhaps you would better stand inside. The scarf can only keep out some of the chill. Thank you for your concern, Doctor. But Mrs. Sullivan will not share your views. Inform her Sergeant McCline told you as such. That should sway her decision. Thank you, Doctor. Will you be needing your scarf back? Hold on to it, Miss Miller. I believe you need it more than I. Bless you, Doctor. As I knock upon the door of the carriage and am drawn back in by McCline, Miss Miller waves us on and returns inside as we move toward the street's end. I pull a second scarf from amidst my bag and cover my scars once more as McCline states, A gentleman, Doctor. I profess as much, so why not practice? Even at the cost of your own appearance, nothing can be allowed to stand in the way of chivalry, Sergeant. Even grotesque forms such as mine. I don't believe Miss Miller witnessed as such. We can only hope, Sergeant. We can only hope. Shall we? Certainly. As McLean orders, Driver, take us to Scotland Yard, please. Make it fast. Yes, sir. Of course. Hiya! The driver pulls the reins and snaps them, cracking the sound barrier as they fall against the horse's sides. We race on toward the files which await our inspection and strive to gain a foothold in this investigation. Tell me, Doctor, what of your choice to become a pathologist? I could not be a detective, sir. So was the closest I could come. Aye, but surely you've tried your ambition further. I met opposition all the way, sir. Mostly from those already in the position. Of course. But what if I told you that if you solve this case, I could talk to some very important people? They would like nothing more than to turn you into an inspector. I would say, do you think me a fool? And tell you that you're wasting your time. Well, Doctor, you see, these people will not be denied and excel at getting what they want. I could ask them to open doors, and you could walk through them. I'm afraid I rely on one to open doors for me, sir. He tends not to fill my heart with promise, and then let me down. Please yourself, Doctor. If you change your mind, the offer will always be there. Thank you, sir. Perhaps I will take you up on that offer one day. Uh, wait me when we arrive, Doctor. No need, sir. We're already there. Now you had better... Sir? As I leave McCline in his slumber, I enter Scotland Yard, the last time I had visited as a trophy in their hands, sentencing me to hang by the neck until death. Was this going to go as smooth as a saw blade? Definitely. I enter the gates with their eyes judging, penetrating my stare, as if to value my soul but nervousness gives rise to confidence, as I cease to care for what they think. For I lived my sentence, and by their eyes was a free man. Well, free from one prison, anyway. I approach the receptionist, a high-class gentleman with mustache and bearded chin, hair of small curls and greasy appearance, eyes of blue and tanned skin. The desk at which he worked, so large and uniform, not an object out of place, from his typewriter to his stationery all immaculately aligned. I ask in a voice noticeably different from my regular tone, perhaps due to the fear which overpowered my heart, how the shoe would be on the other foot, if only I had. Never mind. Hello, hello there. Dr. Lantern, uh, I'm, I'm here with Sergeant McCline to observe the manifest for the heart case. Uh, yes, 
The hard case. Yes, uh, the file will be in the catacombs, but you will need the keys. Uh, you do have the keys, don't you? As McLean instructs. I do, George. And if you don't want to lose this position, then you will let me and the good doctor here pass. Yes, sir. Sorry, sir. Right through here. He moves part of the wall and moves a painting to reveal the opening toward a staircase, descending into darkness, but holding what I needed to see. The truth. Walls give way to each other in a cylindrical motion, evading and twisting, stairs interlocking and light beginning to combust into life as a maze constructed by Leonardo da Vinci himself. Fascinating, isn't it, Doctor? Jekyll designed it after the rise of Bloodsnitch to protect all his cases and their manifest. I look onto the walls and witness words of gold, shimmering out to me, displaying names I felt I knew, reminiscent of brothers I'd come to know in a past life. These were his cases. Why were they not solved? Simple. They had yet to happen. As soon as Jekyll found out that Bloodsnitch was involved, he abandoned the cases and pursued after them, hoping to deter the inevitable, leaving Inspector Moore to finish them. Well, between you and me, Doctor, Jekyll wasn't going to stop Bloodsnitch overnight, and Moore, well, he's not always says he is professional-wise, I mean. I see. So the cases which are yet to happen remain unsolved. For others, perhaps? Precisely. Four in total, I believe. Scattered through London. At least four on record. Why would he not protect them, I wonder? Surely if Bloodsnitch were involved, then they would merit his attention. Unless he found out about the evidence being used to incriminate him. But why would the royals wish to imprison their greatest ally? Evan knows, Doctor, but the manifest is just ahead. Let's go and see, shall we? We near a series of wooden cabinets, all numbered and full to bursting with cases long since untouched, after Jackal's mastering hand. I open my bag once again and reveal the report, along with the evidence I had compiled at the asylum. In addition to the murder file, I had subsequently fashioned over the years as an aspiring detective, now accompanying Jekyll's own file, retrieved from the open door before me. Here, the hard case. One deck of cards, one cigarette end, one tissue sample, and blonde hair sample, but no compass. Let me see. Why would that be missing? and it looks like it has been replaced by the tissue sample. A cover-up of evidence, but why? To incriminate? Yes, but by whom? Who has access to this area? Anyone with a master key, meaning? Jekyll, if he's still alive. Me and the chief inspector. Oh, and the receptionist. Um, what was his name? Finch or something? Suddenly my mind rings with danger, hearing that name. Surely it couldn't be the monster from my past which had darkened so many of my dreams. Surely it couldn't be him. I could only wait to find out the horror, which lay just meters above me. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we go through the inspirations that were used in the development of this chapter that's just been read to you and break them down. So getting started off, the first point we see in this chapter is that we use dialogue to build animosity between the two arguably central characters of Inspector Moore and Dr. Jack Lantern. Now, with any story, more often than not, what you wish to do is create drama. Now, whether that's on a small scale or a large scale, you pretty much want to be having something happen almost every few pages 
whether it's in the dialogue or their actions toward each other, their body language, whatever it is, you wish to create some form of difference of opinion or animosity toward each other, even to the point of arguing, because it just helps to create that drama. Because as we see in real life, not everybody gets on. People have differences in opinions. People have egos and their own way of doing things, which may not agree with other people. And this causes, whether it's subtle or more in your face, confrontation. And this can obviously be expressed within your characters to create more of a dramatic relationship between the two characters and to show how a relationship in one chapter can be built upon to make it stronger. But in another chapter, it can be used to almost sour that relationship and show the proceedings going through that relationship, how it evolves, how it changes over time, such as normal relationships you have in real life. The second point is the naming of the woman that Dr. Lantern comes into contact with from his past, known as Deadly Nightshade. Now, this was actually one of those interesting coincidences because we had a book that's named Plants and Their Meanings, and it's more for like medieval references to what flowers used to represent. So some herbs meant certain things and some flowers were used at particular ceremonies to indicate certain things, you know, joy, happiness, fear... Uh, sorrow, these sorts of things. They were, they were there to represent certain feelings and certain conditions of the body or mind. And the interesting thing was we already named this character Deadly Nightshade before actually coming into possession of this book. And then once we read the meaning behind Deadly Nightshade, it was again one of those interesting coincidences because Deadly Nightshade in medieval terms, at least in old English folklore, was representative of forbidden love. And that's the interesting thing when we see in this chapter, the fact that Deadly Nightshade is a woman of the night and also the relationship that she's had with Dr. Lantern and Scarcrow. It's almost like this sense of forbidden love. So it was one of those things where the naming of the character has more of an in-depth meaning and the chapter actually emphasizes that meaning throughout without intentionally knowing that information beforehand, which I thought was really cool. The third point is the introduction to a character from A Light in the Mist known as Sergeant McCline. Those of you who have been through A Light in the Mist will recognize him simply because of his accent. Sergeant McCline is the character who helped Jekyll and Flint solve the case. And obviously he returns in this story to sort of come alongside. We'll see as we further progress through the story, he sort of comes alongside Jack to do the same. But basically it's just more emphasizing the point that characters from the first novel appear in the second novel, just as in the case of Officers Dalton Schumann earlier in the story. The fourth point, we see that Jack as a character is quite chivalrous. Now, of course, in the times of Victorian era, chivalry was still relatively smiled upon. It was still accepted as a behavior, uh, especially by women, the fact that a man would display kind gestures toward her. Now, in today's modern climate, uh, obviously we have the rise of female empowerment, which I'm completely for, but we've seen like a, a decrease in the response toward chivalrous behavior in the sense that now it's being viewed as disempowerment. This is one of those viewpoints that I sort of have mixed feelings about. Now, obviously I'm not the authority on it, but to me, if I myself am conducting an act of chivalry, like if I'm holding the door open for somebody or if I offer to help someone lifting something or something like that, I don't see it as a means of disempowerment. I see it as 
I'm offering to help. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman or everything in between. It's just, it's a kind gesture. I suppose it depends on the individual themselves and whether they see it as a disempowering. But I feel like even in a world where, like I say, female empowerment is on the rise. And as I said, I'm all for that. I think that there should be almost like a, a clarity between what is chivalrous and what is disempowering. Because sometimes I think those two get confused. But again, that's my own opinion. And I'm not the authority on it because I don't know everything about feminism or female empowerment. Again, completely for female empowerment, but I'm also for chivalry, if that makes sense. If, if that's even allowed, I don't, I don't, I don't know. And the final point is the introduction to the hidden chambers within Scotland Yard, which were designed by Jackal to preserve cases for the future. Now, the chapter doesn't exactly go into a lot of detail in describing these cases, but in essence, they are the future books of the series. And these are cases, or at least these are people who are known to Jekyll in the interim period between the end of A Light in the Mist and the beginning of this novel, Scarcrow. Jekyll has come into possession of the information regarding these people and the threat that is on their life. And instead of waiting for that case to happen, instead of waiting for them to be murdered, Jekyll has abandoned these cases in search of Bloodsnitch so that he can try to take them down before they actually execute the murders. In then being made aware that once these murders actually occur, the evidence is being used to incriminate him and make him public enemy number one, Jekyll has now either gone missing or subsequently been killed by Bloodsnitch and now we find our character, Jack Lantern, having to pick up where Jekyll left off and investigate the cases going forward. But in essence, every case that is brought in the chamber is subsequently a future novel of the Blood Symphony series. Okay, so that about wraps it up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is where we discuss, as it says, tips of the trade. For those of you who are aspiring authors, or those of you who are already authors that are just looking for that little bit extra, picking up where we left off from the last episode, we were talking about dialect. This episode, we're going to be talking about dialogue. Now, the way to tell the difference between dialect and dialogue, as I see it, is dialect is where you describe the who, when, and where, whereas dialogue is more the what and the why. So, dialect determines who your character is, their mannerisms, their behaviour, whether they're educated or they prefer to use slang terms, etc. When they are set, so what time period they come from, and where they come from. So their particular vocalisations, their particular pronunciation, that kind of thing, whether they're from a northern or southern region of a particular country or a particular area, that's where dialect is responsible. Whereas in this episode, we're going to be talking about dialogue which is more the what and the why. So, you know, the reason behind the conversations, the motive, so to speak. So when considering the what, it tells to what are you trying to put across in the dialogue? So, for instance, if the character is having a conversation and they wish to be telling of a certain behavior, maybe they've got their own personal agenda in the story, that's where the what comes in. So, for instance... If you're using dialogue to create, I don't know, a sense of suspense or tension within a horror novel, you would have loads of short sentences in the dialogue. You would have, for instance, something living, moving, breathing. 
it didn't seem like anything I'd seen before. You know, something like that, where you have short sentences mixed with long sentences. If you have dialogue where it's just an ordinary conversation, then you'll have, again, that mixture, but maybe you'll start introducing more dialect in the sense of you'll start using slang terms to indicate how close these characters are together. But for dialogue, it's simply a tool to be used for the what. So what behavior are you trying to put across in the dialect? What effect are you trying to bring about through your dialogue? As far as the why is concerned, it's more for the sense, why are you having this discussion between these two characters? Is it to emphasize a point in the story? Is it to solidify a plot, the point within that plot? So for instance, if you have two characters that are going to betray each other, are you having them conversing with each other in a friendly manner? Because later in the story, you're then going to have a betrayal. You know, so what is the plan behind the dialogue? The why is more how the dialogue represents the story itself rather than the interrelations between the characters, rather than putting across a certain behavior. Now, the thing to remember with dialogue as with the majority of tools that you use when writing a novel, is a sense of balance. Now, for some stories, you'll notice that they're quite dialogue heavy. Other stories are quite description heavy. What I try to do personally is have a balance 50-50 or at the very most 60-40 for dialogue and description because nothing is more phasing to a reader, speaking from experience, than having page upon page upon page of description with no dialogue. It's just reams and reams of description, and unless it's really compelling description, it can get dull very quickly. The same with dialogue. If you're just having a conversation, but you know nothing about where they are, you know, is this conversation happening as they're walking down the street? Is it happening in a a room? Is that room well furnished? Now, for some people, they don't care. It's just about the conversation. But what you have to remember in a book sense is it's not like a film. In a film, you can listen to the conversation, you can focus on the conversation, but you can also, while your ears are doing the work, your eyes are also doing the work because you can see where they are. With a book, you have to describe all of it. So it pays to have this balance between description and dialogue. And it also helps to have bits of dialogue dotted in between description So, as I said before, it breaks up that menacing chunk of description which would otherwise phase several readers that are not used to reading reams and reams and reams of description. They have a bit of conversation which breaks it up. But it also helps to break up the monologue as well in the sense that you're not just backwards and forwards between characters. It just helps to increase the fluency of your work and it helps to build the surroundings around the conversation and maybe even help tie in that conversation with the actual surroundings creating that more realistic effect as these characters are conversing within a particular scape that you have designed. Okay, so that about wraps it up for this section. And that about wraps it up for episode five. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in, for making us a part of your day. As always, we'll endeavour to include any of the links to any of the information sources that have been mentioned during the course of the episode and include them in the links below so that you have access to any and all information that will help you on your journey as an author or those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are just interested in additional research. At this moment, I just want to take some time now to promote a project 
which is conducted by a personal friend of mine, Callum Young, known as Top Dog Studios. We've mentioned this in previous episodes, that it's a graphic design and mural design painting business, which is used to represent a particular brand for a company. So if that's something that you yourself would be interested in or someone you know would be interested in, head on over to Top Dog Studios website. That's www.topdogstudios, all lowercase letters, .co.uk. Head on over there and you'll find a section where you can fill in all the details about the project, your contact details, also your budget and the time in which you want it achieved. So it's a complete professional way of representing your brand with a handcrafted art style. And as mentioned previous, the majority of these art styles have already been incorporated by well-known brands such as River Island. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, be sure to head on over to Top Dog Studios website. And I'm sure Callum would be interested to hear about your project or about someone you know's project. And he would certainly take an interest in that and see that it gets a professional representation with a handcrafted art style. Okay, once again, guys, thank you very much for tuning in to these episodes. It means a lot to us that you would take time out of your otherwise busy schedule. For all of you who take time away to listen to these episodes, it's just a testament to your loyalty toward these stories, toward these episodes, and it means the world to us that you would do that. So I just want to say, on behalf of myself, thank you, and I hope you have a wonderful day. In whatever you're doing, give it 100% and always be sure to take the time to take care of yourself and those around you. I hope you have a great day. I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you next time.